The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Zach Childs and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today we are at 3614 Jackson Highway. And if you don't know where that is, that is Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. And today we have Will McFarlane with us. Will McFarlane has had a, a long career outside of Muscle Shoals and then moved here in 1980 and has, has been part of the, uh, the Swampers and was inducted with them into the the Musicians Hall of Fame. By their great largesse, I might say. <laughs> and we are just so happy to get to sit down and talk with you. That's delightful. I appreciate you asking. Well, I was really struck by finding that your mother died when you were five years old. Wow, that's a good start. Mm-hmm. You know, I've said it more often uh, lately than usual. You know, I mean, obviously it's something that must have affected my life a great deal. Yeah. But I'm in a pretty indomitable we McFarlands, you know, you suck it up and you live your life and you do yeah. it well and you But uh dad remarried twice after that. Okay. And uh so I've had two stepmothers. Yeah. Uh the first of whom was actually very musical herself. Okay. And started me on piano lessons. But my father's take on music was it's part of a well-rounded education, but you don't do it for a living. Right. I think he saw Sal Minio in the Gene Krupa story and okay. just decided I would be down and out on heroin in no time, you know. And so <laughs> it's just that's not in your cards. Yeah. But there was something just deep in my soul that I actually didn't know. Uh, really, my mother's history, it was mm-hmm. never really told to me. And at one point, somebody said, well, you know, your mother had perfect pitch. Wow. And she had a music degree at University of Texas. And I was, well, no wonder, you know. Yeah. I, and at one point, I, I you know, told my dad, Dad, I'm not doing this. Because he was Naval Academy, and so was my granddad and my uncles. And yeah. it was very much a part of my upbringing. I lived on Navy bases and went to a different school almost every year. And, and so, you know, being raised by a left-brained engineering test pilot who just didn't get the idea that when I would come home from school, I would go into my bedroom and put on a song and try to learn it on this guitar. And I think it scared him. I think it worried him that it was going to wreck my life. You know, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, February 9th, 1964. I begged to watch it because it was a school night. I wasn't usually allowed to watch TV on a school night. And Ed Sullivan was a Sunday night. But I begged him. I would have gone apoplectic if I couldn't have. And, and uh and there they were, and you know, and it was just, I th- and, and, and as absurd as it sounded in my little 11-year-old head, everything in me was going, that's, that's what I do, even though I didn't do any of it yet. Mm-hmm. But I knew somehow, you know, in my DNA, that's what I did. And as it turns out, it's, 
that's where it came from. Even when I you know, dropped out of school later and decided to go for it, my dad was, you're crazy. And I said, you know, Dad, I'm not doing this out of rebellion. I'm doing it because I feel if I don't do it, something's broken. You know, there's something, something in there that's broken. And, and, and uh, you know, my mother's influence runs deep. Yeah. You know. What does music do for you? It does. I'm convinced it's... Uh, I, I've made jokes over the years because I've lost so many good friends. But, you know, I, I say music either keeps you young or kills you young. <laughs> sort of, you know. But, uh... But I, um, I feel that when I'm playing, I, I, you know, I, I'll hear people go, yeah, I'm doing it this or that for the money or whatever. And Roger and I once were, you know, were sitting at a table and when uh, somebody was talking about wherever the money is, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah. we looked at each other and said, I've never played once in my life for money. I've driven to the gig and set up and torn down and driven home for money. Yeah. You know, I do all this stuff around it for money. But when I'm playing, that's... That's just it. That's, that's. Yeah. And I never thought I'd maybe be at the place I am. I was a simple player. I still say I get hired for what I leave out, you know. I, yeah. Knowing what not to do is a great part of the Muscle, muscle Shoals. God, I just got tongue-tied with you. Yeah, <laughs> it's the catching. Muscle Shoals' legacy here is, um, is, you know, the simplicity and letting the song breathe and the holes mm. are as important as the notes. And the economy. The, the economy. The, the self-editing. Yes. Mm. Yes, there's a lot of that. I tell a lot of the young guys that if you learn what to do, you'll get work periodically. If you learn what not to do, you can probably make a living. <laughs> you know, it's like, it takes you so many years to learn to do something that's sort of vaguely interesting, and then you yeah. learn to call that over the next rest of your life, probably. Who were some of the teachers that you had? Oh, there's no question. I mean, they just start, I'll just start firing names at you. You know, Reggie yeah. Young, of course. I mean, his touch is, I think he's the greatest tracking musician I've ever, that ever was. I mean, others might argue with that, but I've seen him in action, played with him, and and he's just so effortless, and it's so right, and he listens to the demo as it's going down, and looks at the chart, and then his hands land on the guitar, and, you know, and he brings up his volume, and you go, well, that's exactly right. And then I know what I'm doing, and then he does one lick coming out of the bridge, and they write the string chart to it, you know, so he's yeah. a major influence. But before I met Reggie, I still knew what he was doing. I, I saw his name on records, but Cornell Dupree, the kind yeah. of opening licks on you know, Rainy Night in Georgia. Mm -hmm. I moved into New York City in 1975 to sit at Cornell's feet. I actually was at McKell's several nights a week yeah. uh, for the whole year in 1975 to see him. And, of course, it was Richard T. and Gordon Edwards yeah. and Steve Gadd. It was a great little yeah. house band. What did you learn from watching Cornell Dupree? Cornell Dupree was awesome, man, just so effortless. And, yeah. uh, and uh, one of my favorite pieces of advice from Cornell is I, uh, I got called by Paul Rothschild. I was in Bonnie Raitt's band at the time, and I got called by Paul Rothschild. He said, I think I'd like some of your live energy on this next record. You know, yeah. he had Billy Payne and had John Hall there, too, as well, in case yeah. I screwed up. And, but he had Freebo and Fred yeah. Tackett on acoustic guitar and wow. Gary Malibu on drums. It was a great band. And, and uh, so I was a little nervous, and I was excited. I was going to fly to L.A., you know, in two days. And I went down to see Cornell that night, and, and there he was playing perfectly, you know. And, and I went, you know, he said, how are you doing, Will? You know, we were getting to know each other. And I said, actually, I'm real excited. I'm flying to L.A. in a couple of days to play on a Bonnie Raitt record. I'm a little nervous. He goes, oh, man. He's lighting a pipe. Oh, man, don't be nervous. They give you something you can't read. You say, oh, excuse me, Mr. Producer, uh, could you hum it for me? Maybe I can pick up on it. <laughs> I thought, yeah, maybe you could say it. It's still one of my favorite pieces yeah. of professional advice I've ever gotten. 
and of course Cornell's uh, the opening licks of you know soul you know oh, what key am I in perfect started in F so what, what were some of the things that you learned from Cornell, you know, playing-wise? What were, you know, and just for people that aren't super familiar with Cornell, would you play a little bit maybe in his style a little bit if you, if you... Well, you know, he might go... You know, he was doing Boogie Woman, Boogie Woman the first time I ever saw him, and he'd go... But he'd keep going, he'd go... Just real simple, wiry, yeah. you know, and uh, I don't know if I executed that beautifully, but I mean, that's the that's yeah. the sort of yeah. rhythm lead thing. I told you I, I asked uh, Jerry Wexler once when I was working for him what what his first impression of Cornell was. He said, you know, well, I had, you know, three guitar players on the, you know, and one of them would be doing a whack-a-whack, and one would be playing chords, one might be doing some fills, and... First time I ever had Cornell in there, I fire the other two guys. <laughs> so he he was a yeah. one man rhythm section, you know. Right. He just keep the rhythm going. He might go. You know, it, it would just be moving. It would percolate. It would, you know, just he's just. I'm a huge fan. How did you get the gig with Bonnie? You know, I still wonder about that, but I tip my hat a lot to Dick Waterman, who was her manager. And okay. Dick's more than a manager. Dick was a journalist, an amazing thinker. I mean, he doesn't just have iconic pictures of Bonnie and Janice, and, but he has iconic pictures of Robert F. Kennedy and Ted Williams, you know. Yeah, there's, uh, he has a website, and you can see a lot of his photos. Well, he's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and he lived in Cambridge, and I was living in Cambridge at the time. Our band, I had left home with some of my high school buddies and hooked up with a couple other guys and we were woodshedding in a barn in upstate New York and we moved down to DC to gig around there where I saw Roy Buchanan play 50 times, you know. And then we moved up to Cambridge mm -hmm. and we were just gigging all the time and this guy started showing up at my gigs and he, yeah. you know, I knew who he was because he'd gone around and he, he was the one who searched out Sun House and found him and Fred yeah. McDowell and, you know, brought him to Newport. And so he, he's just a really amazing guy. And he was showing up at all my live gigs, just local gigs. And he dressed like Clint Eastwood. You know, he had a flat hat on and a Fu Manchu, and he'd be smoking a rum-soaked Brazilian cigar. Like, like in the Italian Westerns? Yeah, he was like a Sergio Leone character. He would come in with his Fu Manchu and his cigar and a black leather vest and a flat hat on, and, yeah. and he'd sit at the back of the room. and Just an unusual guy, you yeah. know? And one day he showed up front row with Bonnie Raitt. And apparently... She had always been a duo up until then, you know, with just Freebo. Mm -hmm. and, but she would open for Orleans or Little Feet or Paul Butterfield or people like that. And they'd come out, maybe do the last couple of songs with her or whatever. But she didn't have her own band and she was getting ready to do the Late for the Sky tour with Jackson Brown. Oh and goodness. she had decided she needed her own band and... and I don't know, maybe just didn't want to pay L.A. prices or something, you know. But Dick had yeah. said, I think I found this young guy. He's, 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 he's thoughtful and he, and, he, and he doesn't overplay. And, you know, he thought I was being tasteful. I was probably just playing all I knew at the yeah. time, you know. And so he sent me all the records up to that point, which were four of them up through Streetlights. And I just woodshedded with him and just learned everything. So the first rehearsal we had was, well, do you know Under the Fallen Sky? And I'd say, what key? And... 
you know, and yeah. we'd just do it, and we'd run through it once. You go, well, that was fine. How about, do you know, stay too long at the fair? Do you know, love has no pride? Do you know, love me like a man? And yeah. and the first rehearsal went so easily, but nobody was actually really that nice to me the first couple of days because Bonnie had apparently maybe invited people she'd met one night in a bar or something like that. And you, you know, she could have had anybody she wanted in L.A. and brings yeah. this 22-year-old kid out from Cambridge to L.A. to do a major tour. Were there other other guitar players jockeying for that position? I have no idea, but but I've met several. You know, like now that I'm friends with, you know, Jack Pearson and Duncan Cameron and guys like that that, that say, yeah. at the time, I think, you know, they were thinking maybe there was an opening and Bonnie might, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I think Duncan might have told me that one yeah. time. I don't remember if Jack did or not, but Jack did see me one time and told me he liked what I was doing. I was saying, good yeah. Lord, Jack, I don't even know what you're doing when you're warming up. <laughs> but, uh, and, and, you know, I, I love having these guys as friends. But, uh, but yeah, so I ended up doing the Late for the Sky Tour and then she kept me yeah. around for another five years. Yeah. Uh, and that was just rare air, you know, at that time in the 70s. We were doing, we were on the bill with Tom Waits and Little Feet, bunch of shows. I mean, Lowell would invite me out to do encores with him. I've sat in with him, wow. you know, a dozen times and actually played his, Billy Payne called me to to be part of the, the house band for his memorial at the Forum. So, I mean, that was, I was honored to be, you know, hanging out with those guys. and. Yeah. And, you know, there'd be, you'd, you'd have Muddy Waters and doing shows with Buddy Guy and Junior Wells and, you know, John Lee Hooker. And, you know, it was a great formative. You can imagine 22, 23, 24, 25 years old. That's, yeah. that's who I was out on the road with. You, and you had kind of the dichotomy of you had the, the California Warner Brothers kind of in asylum kind of scene that you were kind of touring with, and then you also had the blues, the totally. the original blues guys that you were meeting through her her manager and yeah. also through her because of her her love of, of of you know real you know gut bucket blues. Oh man, that was when I realized you got to be a listener to play because you're you're going to play thirteen and a half bar blues with these guys because yeah. one of them once said to me, "We go to the four when I go to the four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so they'd be going, oh, yeah. my baby. And now we're at the floor. You know, and yeah. you'd be going, okay, I'm just hanging on for dear life here. And, you know, that, that wasn't something you learned at Electra Asylum. You know, that was something that, that yeah. you got out there with John Lee Hooker, you know, or, yeah. or Arthur Crudup. Yeah. You know. Or, so you're, and, and you're also around uh, Len Lee. You know, oh, around, gosh. You know, what was it like hearing Lindley every night? The first time I ever heard that lap steel, mm -hmm. I, it was just otherworldly to me. Now we take it from, you know, everybody goes, I yeah. need a Lindley thing on that. And I try right. to emulate him even when slide on a bottleneck, you know. Right. The first time I ever heard him kick into something, I, I, I mean, we all just turned around and went, yeah. wow, you know. And, uh, and it was funny because he took me a little under his wing because I had showed up to Bonnie's gig. I had a really cheap, lousy Telecaster okay. that was like an early 70s, but it was the laminated fingerboard and, yeah. the, and the real ice-picky pickup and the, yes. the, the uh, threaded... Threaded saddles. Saddles. It would break an A string in the middle of a rock and roll yeah. tune, you know. I mean, just this piece of junk telly that was that didn't... And she was playing a 175, an old 54, that blonde with the P90 dog yes. ear. And I had a 175D that I'd found in a pawn shop for 200 bucks, cherry burst. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I flew it out there, too. So I had a, a terrible telly in this 175. But the 175 couldn't handle those big stage. You know, you're playing these... 
Which, you know, feedback. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just couldn't handle it. And so Lindley loaned me a telly and on our first break, said, let me take you shopping. And he took me shopping to these little out-of-the-way places in California. And I, these prices sound absurd today, but I spent $275. Uh, I, that was, um, Bonnie started me at 400 bucks a week plus expenses. And for 22 year old kid who'd been making 10 bucks a night and all the beer he could drink, you know, that was like awesome. Felt like you'd oh won my the lottery. So I took, you know, it's not even a week's pay and I go out with Lindley and I bought, for $275, I bought a 63 Strat, a 59 Telly, and a 58 Champ. Yeah. And I bought the Champ because Lindley said, you're going to want this someday. And uh, he was preamping his lap steel with one. He had a resistor, maybe a four-ohm resistor and a switch and a quarter-inch out. He was just slaving his amp, and he'd dime that thing and get that killer. So the first thing I ever did to it was mod it and put a speaker bypass in it so I could yeah. preamp stuff like that. And I ended up selling the, you know, it was just a work-a-day strat, and it needed a fret job, so I sold it for 250 bucks to a buddy of mine. Um, who traded it to Jimmy Weeder? I think Jimmy Weeder has it now. Yeah, it's my my old '63 Strat. But uh, I traded it to a buddy for well, I sold it for 250 bucks and bought my '54 Strat for 400. It was a refin 0533, and it's a great Strat. I still have it, but I don't have the '63. I sold the Telly to David Landau for uh, 250 bucks, and I bought this '55 for 300. So that was just a $50 difference. <laughs> and as soon as I got this one, I was breaking those strings down here on the 55 on the threaded bridge. So I put this uh, thing in. Carruthers did that for me at Westwood Music out there with Fred Wallach in yeah. L.A. And he was the guru of all of us L.A. guitar players at the yeah. time. And, you, need and to put so, this, you need to put this bridge on there. You need to put this bridge on there. It'll keep it in tune, and, and it'll actually give it a little more sustain and yeah. changes the sound a little But it makes it and it's great. I, this was my primary session guitar at Muscle Shoals Sound. Okay. You know, for Edda and Bobby Bland, a little Miller yeah. and Johnny Taylor and all that stuff. I I, pro I, I use this guitar 90% of the time yeah. to cut tracks. Yeah. Footage from your the Bonnie days shows you uh, mainly playing for a Music Man amp. Is that kind They of... endorsed us. Okay. And they were so harsh to me. I mean, bless yeah. their hearts. I, 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 was, I struggled with them all the time. I listened back to some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And the, the combination of the harshness sometimes of those Music Man amps and the, and my youthful trying to cram in an idea that I have as opposed to just letting the song breathe, you know, I, I, you know, I jolt myself sometimes with that old footage, you know, I admit that and sort of wish yeah. I could have another shot at it, you know, every now and then. There's, yeah, there's uh, footage like from the old gray whistle test. Yeah, that was pretty harsh. That was right ahead. That was, they flew our amps over there, you know, I mean, they had Music Men's for us. And yeah. Music Man's or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, they were given Freebo basses and given us strings and so. What were, uh, what were, what were some things you were learning like playing wise, like some important concepts maybe that you were, that were impacting your playing at this point? You know, I think one of the things that helped me, um, was I didn't believe it or not know about capos. Okay. So I'd hear maybe somebody going... like that you know and I think that's what they were doing I realized no he just has a capo there and he's just playing in C yeah. but it helped me dissect the neck and with okay. Bonnie you know if you're doing a you know 
might go. You know, just colors, two note colors. And I realized, well, if that's an E and that's an E and that's an E, you know, or that's an A and that's an A and that's an A or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Or the yeah. better one even, the, that's a C. Yeah. And that's because knowing the C, you know, positions, you know, it really made it swing to me. And so the, the sick, you know, the fourths, yeah. you know, and then the thirds. Yeah. So kind of the, uh, the, the, the dissecting the neck into yeah. two stops. Yeah. And under Bonnie, that really came together, you know, yeah. that just really, because her voice is so magnificent that you don't want it to go, you know, love has no pride. You know, when you do some ridiculous, you know, man-made, you know, you know, you want yeah. it to go. You wanted to, you wanted to breathe under her and so my style really developed a lot under her yeah. and of course then but then you go out on, you know let's say you're opening it let's say you've got to follow little feet like sometimes they open for bonnie because it was her show and people didn't know who they were and i mean once they once you've just heard little feet i mean you're gonna walk out there and your slide playing is gonna and i'm not a Dwayne kind of slide player and i really admire that or derek Tr guys like that blow me away but the way Lowell, and I don't even have a slide on, I should have brought a slide, but I, I don't have, but the way Lowell would go, and just that slow vibrato and just use one note, or, or when they go to the, you're like, I'll die in a palace is drunk wine. You know, to go to the third of the four chord with a slide. You know, just that simple orchestration, very lyrical, very slow, yeah. and very right. And he was a huge influence on me, Lowell was. So one of the things I'm very curious about is the, the challenges of working with another guitar stylist, like Bonnie. So you had been playing in clubs, and then you're playing with Bonnie, and, uh, and she has a very identifiable you know, style of guitar playing, and you've, you, know, you, you, of course, have to be subservient to her, to her vocal, but also to her guitar. What were some of the challenges of? Well, it was actually, in a lot of ways, it was easier when she was playing slide because she owns that so big time. Her, her finger picking and all that is, you know, it's, it's Mississippi John Hurt. Yeah. It's, it's great. And, and it's easy to fall in or me even many times she would want me to play slide because she still wanted to hear slide. Mm -hmm. Like I actually took a slide solo on one of her records. I'm on taking my time or whatever uh, because she liked the slide feel, but she would be playing the guitar. And so that was an easy one. You know, I could just feel that like I would if you were sitting there finger picking with me and all that. Mm -hmm. But when she's owning that, that real open G, very dominant seven kind of thing, she's owning it. So I'm out of her way. That's actually, I'm just, you know, you know, I mean, like if you're going, and then she went, well, well, I told you, baby, such a long time ago. That's what I'm doing because you're going, you know, you know, whatever, she's, yeah. she's owning it, 
You know, she's, and so I'm just, I just hold down the fort, and Freebo's playing tuba on that anyway, so. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of ways, her slide playing was more dominant than her finger picking, you know. How would you describe her slide playing? I just, it's her, as soon as I hear it, it's such a signature, isn't it? It is. It's like, I grew up in an era where you'd hear one note and you'd know who it was. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd hear one note, you'd go, oh, that's B.B. King, or that's Jeb Beck, or that's Jimi Hendrix, or even a little later, maybe a Mark Knopfler or whatever. But you hear one slide in, you go, well, that's Bonnie Raitt, mm-hmm. you know? And you can think what you want, but she owns it. She's got signature. And it's funny because Fender made her a signature guitar, and it doesn't sound nearly as much like her as that old hybrid she plays. You know, it's like a 65 neck, 64 body or something. Yeah. But she's a middle pickup. Ladies, she just sets it in the middle, yeah. you know, and just, and it just sounds like her. And when I set it in the middle and try to play slide, it just sounds like me. It does. It's, it's funny how, and also she's she plays with her second finger, which is very rare. She, right, you know, she has the, and she does it with a wine bottle, and for all I know, just whatever wine bottles are made of. You know, very few, and also they're shaped like this. So there are certain, it gets glassy on area. I mean, you know, sort of it'll get ragged on areas where she's really holding one down and it's staying a little ragged below it because it's carved. And I think it's a combination of things, but it's just her energy on that second finger. Like I've tried to do it before and I just do it. But it's funny, I'll sound a little more like her when I, you know, find an old wine bottle slide or whatever, you know. And, yeah. But she's she's just the way... She touched it was the way she does it. Was she much of a, of a tone hound, or did what what made her decide to play slide on a strat? I, I think well, you know, Fred McDowell. You know, Dick introduced her to Fred McDowell, to my understanding, and I I know she just absorbed. It was like a you know, it was a duck to water, but it was yeah. you know, but. Uh, you know, when she was playing, or some of her early stuff, you hear her on like a resonator or stuff like that. But it just right. doesn't seem like her. It's somebody no. then trying to be bluesy. As soon as she picks up a Strat and goes electric with her band, it's so comfortable. It's, you can just go, well, that's that's just her DNA, so to speak. That's just the way she feels. And, and you know, people find their voice earlier than others. I mean, I, I still think I've been everybody's mutt. Like, you know, cut a country record or R&B record or you go in with Johnny Taylor and he wants this, and Bobby Bland doesn't want that at all, or whatever, you know, and you just learn to be a mutt. And uh, and and so I'm the I'm sort of a sum total of all of my influences, whereas Bonnie just had a voice. Mm-hmm. She just had an identity at a very young age, like people like James Taylor did. You know, you see him as a teenager singing something in the way she moves. You go, my gosh, what a signature. Yeah. You know, or Hendrix and those guys, it just had such a signature. And I just think I've been more of a mutt, you know. I've... You know, I'd like to think that my touch is sweet enough and, and that I've landed well a couple of times, but also can sound pretty ragged if they want me to. You know, I'm just sort yeah. of the utility infielder around here. I think that's when I first got here, I, I helped Jimmy Johnson, you know, make his job easier because he was starting to produce more and, and he could sit on the other side of the glass and just sort of go through me. And, and I might just, today I'm just doing hardcore back pickup chinks on a Telecaster and tomorrow I'm playing Strat, and you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And I, I think people like Bonnie are just whatever makes them resonate. They they found their voice. It's a special thing. It's I, I think it's a gift. You know, some got it and some ain't. And 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 you can work as hard as you want. I know a lot of people that work really hard at doing it, 
that just aren't even, God bless them, they're not close. Yeah. And Bonnie just was. She had her, her signature voice with with her voice, and then she had her signature guitar style. Even whether she was finger picking on that one, uh, you know, that 175, mm -hmm. I, I am not exaggerating to say I have seen grown men cry in the front row of her concerts numerous times in my life. Yeah. I mean, she, her voice was so bittersweet, and still they never captured her on record to us because, like, you know, my wife Jan will say, because one night she remembers so specifically being at Bonnie's house, there was some kind of party, and Bonnie goes, oh, yeah, you remember that song? It just goes, ah, it just opens her mouth, and it's like a chord. It's like you hear overtones. You hear, I think Don was finally captured it pretty, right. pretty well, unlike I Can't Make You Love Me and that kind of thing. But even yet, when you hear her standing next to you, there's this frequency range that, you know, it seems to have, like, around it that is so special. And uh, how do you mic that? I mean, you know, how do you, how do you capture that? Finally, they, they, they started to catch some of that. They started to catch some of it, but her first, you know, several didn't necessarily... Yeah. I mean, they caught that she was soulful and amazing and stood yeah. alone in her Venn diagram. But she's, uh, she's great. She's still my favorite interpretive singer of all time. Before we get to, to to the Muscle Shoals years, just any other you know major you know impact that some of these other players you know had on you? Because again, you're working with Little Feet and James Taylor and and Orleans, all these other bands. You know, were there any other guitar? John players? Hall was a huge influence. Why? He was the shoes in a way I had to fill. He had done the solo and stayed too long at the fair. Right. He uh, he had done the solo on uh, You've Been in Love too. Too long, maybe. Okay. Uh, and yeah, girl, you've been dealing, dealing, that kind of yeah. really rounded. He took the edge off a lot of the rhythm playing I was hearing. Like he'd take the edge off a Steve Cropper type lick and, you know, put a little, did it, did it, did it, you know, stuff like that. And he he was like a big brother to me in a lot of ways, you know. And and he'd come along and you know, like even when he wrote the song Good Enough. For her record, uh, I don't, I don't really remember it well, but or whatever, I don't remember the part. Yeah. I, I remember, but that's me. He wrote the song, but when I just started riffing, he, he totally deferred to me. He's one of those generous guys that deferred to the younger guy. Wow, like Reggie was. Yeah. I've always joked that when I lived in L.A., the first time I ever came up sounding stereo in my headphones, I asked him, you know, How do you, how's that happening, you know? And he yeah. was like, oh, that's for me to know and you to find. You know, it's like yeah. everybody, you'd, you'd, yeah. you'd meet a good, run into a guitar player whose solo you just heard on somebody else's record, and you go, man, that sounded great. What were you using? Oh, that's for me to, like, there yeah. was this sense, the first time I ever did a session with Reggie and he did something, I went, what are you doing over there? And he goes, oh, you know, I'm just sort of turning this inside out and here, here yeah. plug into my rig. Yeah. I mean, truly, he was so generous of spirit yeah. that I realized, you know what? He's not threatened. It starts at his fingers. Mm -hmm. Whatever he gives to you, just be generous. And so I'd like to think that, uh, that the guys I came up under were great influences yeah. that way. Reggie, John Hall, Hall would grant me that. Uh, he was great. Barrera and I were tossed at each other a little more. We're friends now. We just played together a concert on my birthday. We mm -hmm. just did a... Uh, Fred and, and, and Paul came in and they throw me a little birthday bash in Durham every year and so I, I played with them and we're really good friends and love each other you know I mean there's a great lot of history there a lot of water under the dam but in a way Little Feet like Lowell would sort of 
you know, he'd invite me off for sailing shoes, you know, or whatever, and then turn to Paul maybe and go, boy, Will really played well tonight, didn't he? Or something like that, you know. Or, <laughs> a little competition. Uh, might, he might have even yeah. said, you know, I mean, you know, boy, I think Will cut you on that one, you know, or yeah. something like that, you know. And yeah. then Barrera would, then I'd invite Paul out. I'd say, hey, can Paul come out on big yeah. wine road and Paul you could tell he's loaded for bear man he's going to come out there and he's going to play it you know got something and, to prove and he does and so but that lifted my that that also it was good healthy stuff it wasn't like we didn't like each other but no. there was a little bit of a you know a little bit of competition in there and 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 it raised because he was listening to way more I love Jeff Beck but I was listening to rhythm guitar players I wasn't listening to guys that were radical soloists mm -hmm. you know uh and he was. I mean, he wanted to pitch harmonic, be on your case. And I said, oh, okay, I could go there. I've seen Roy Buchanan play. You know, I'd get my telly out with him and I'd do some pinch. You know, and we'd get into a little bit of a, you know, a thing. And that raised the bar. It's like, the, you know, if you go out and play with a better golfer or something, you know, you always play better. Yeah. Just because he'll teach you something about course management. You know, you go play a better tennis player and he'll beat you, but it'll be the best tennis you ever played. And I think that... Guys like Barrere and John Hall and, and uh, I mean, Bob Margolin was playing with Money Waters, you know. I mean, his, I mean, he's a blues icon, if you ask me, you know. And we were sort of the two young sort of white guy blues guys, you know, in that echelon, you know. And he'd come out and play with Money Waters and just, you know, sound like Bloomfield or something, you know. And I'd be like, man, I don't have that in there. You know, I, I need to maybe... And so everybody, like if you're a list, I think good players, Roger Hawkins told me that one time on a date, and he just said, he, he, he complimented me one day. And all I was doing was a simple little thing. It was, a, it was a demo, I was playing acoustic guitar, but he went, just maybe about every 16 bars. But I was ready for him, and I know, and for some reason my acoustic and his little hi-hat almost sounded orchestra. You know, it was just all through the track, it, 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 it was just the simplest thing. Maybe yeah. we're the only, but, he turned to me at one point after about five of them went by and went, you're playing good today. <laughs> you know, and he didn't offer compliments. We were in the rhythm section together. We, you know, it wasn't like he had to compliment me. But he went, you're playing good today. And I said, I'm just listening to you. And he said, good players are good listeners. Yes. And they're responding. It's a conversation. Always. You know, he's, he's playing something and, and you responded to that. Well, I use that terminology all the time, and I, I'm still so thankful that here at Muscle Shoals, we cut four-piece and five-piece all the time. And we've been doing it many times, you know, if it's Clayton Ivey or Spooner or David Hood or whatever, or Bob Ray or, you know, Milton Sledge. I mean, the guys that, that live in this town, the older guys mm -hmm. that have known each other for almost 40 years now, there is a conversation. And we don't just go in there thinking about what we're going to do on this track. Oh, you're, it, it's like this conversation. Right. You know, they, they mention something. They go, really? I wouldn't have thought of that. But, but you know, it's, yeah. and, that's what, and that's why so much of the modern music became like one soul over it. It's like, you know, and, then, and, and a guy might fly in a solo here and there, but it's one guy trying, you know, and unless it's Stevie Wonder, and then it's amazing, you know. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah. But the four souls having a conversation to me just makes something happen. You wouldn't have gone, you wouldn't have had that conversation if you hadn't been with your buddies listening, listening, really listening to what they have to say. Yeah. So why did you move to Muscle Shoals in 1980? Well, I'd moved to L.A. finally and after all. I'd stayed in Cambridge with my young family. I'd gotten married, and that's a story in itself, but I'd been introduced to my now wife of 42 years uh, by a mutual friend, 
And uh, we just had this whirlwind thing. And I mean, I married her on the 27th day I'd ever been in the same room with her. You know, I mean, it was like, wham, <laughs> under a tree in her dad's backyard. And I jokingly say with my hippie friends standing around going like, why do you have to register your love with the government, man? You know, it's sort of like that. But, uh, and I've said that time and time again, but, you know, they really looked at us like, what are you doing? And a year later, we had twins. And so when Bonnie had, I think she had like a vocal nodes episode or something like that, and I had an offer from stuff in LA, and I thought, you know, nothing's happening in Cambridge right now. It's just bar band stuff. I, I need to take my LA shot, you know, and we, and we were just not happy out there. It's just, you know, I had to decide, okay, it's 12 miles away. Do I want to be there on time after sitting in traffic for two hours? Or do I want to leave two hours, you know, early, get there in 30 minutes and wait for two? You know what I mean? It was like, right. it was just a quality of life issue. Uh, I lived in out by the beach by Santa Monica, Venice area. Mm -hmm. And she might rehearse up Lancashire, you know, up in North Hollywood. And I mean, that's, you know, two hours of my life. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Janet hated it. She's a small town, New England girl, you know, and, uh, and we had two babies and not anybody wanted to rent to babies, you know, and so it was tough finding a place to live and it was super expensive. And I was, my night out, uh, my wife was having a, a total spiritual conversion at the time. So her night out was Wednesday night. My night out was Monday night at the Troubadour. And it was like hanging out with, you know, I ended up, you know, on a Leon Russell record because of that. He goes, come on back to my house tonight, man. Let's make a record, you know, and I did, I, you know. So I ended up playing all these guys. I met Duncan Cameron, who was with the Amazing Rhythm Aces at the time. And he introduced me to Jimmy Johnson, I think. He introduced me to Mike Barnett, and who introduced me to Jimmy Johnson. And Jimmy was in L.A. Okay. And uh, I don't know what he was doing, some record company business out there. And uh, they took me to meet him. Said, I think you'll like this guy. I think you'll like the way he plays. He's a rhythm player. He's a... And so Jimmy goes, well, play me something. And I played him a song I'd written. And he goes, well, play me something I don't like. Yeah. And uh, I started laughing. And he goes, I'd like to demo that song. They're cutting McGuinn Hillman right now. Wexler's in town. And so they flew me down here. And I demoed the tune. And they put this, they put the first session band together for me here in town. It was Roger Hawkins, David Hood, Mac McAnally on acoustic, Clayton Ivey on on Hammond, Randy McCormick on Rhodes, and Duncan Cameron and I on electric guitar. Yeah. I mean, they decided, they went all out, they, we're going to cut this little R&B demo and let's put a band together. And uh, we cut it first take. And I was like, Are we, do you guys keep first takes around here? Because Bonnie Raitt records were 30 takes, you know, and mm -hmm. spliced two inches. And David Hood went, yeah, all the time. And I just went to L.A. and gave everybody notice and said, I'm moving to the land of where they keep first takes every now and then. And I'd started working in L.A., you know, I toured with the Pointer Sisters and John Boyle and I actually I, I did some of the Urban Cowboy soundtrack, and then played on his kid brother's record and was you know doing some LA session work you know working yeah. for Epic Records and just helping them clean up records that the production didn't quite work out on and maybe do power court you know just utility yeah. infielder kind of stuff. And my friends thought I was committing career suicide to leave LA right when I was starting to work you know and uh, but I got down here and probably saved my life you know yeah. we, I moved here. And so you left Bonnie also. I did, yeah. 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 Was that tough? It was. It, we were all in a mutual place, I okay. must say. Uh, 
it was like after five, six years and, you know, a lot of road work. And we came back from New Year's Eve where we'd opened for Willie Nelson and Leon Russell. It was Delbert McClinton, Bonnie Wright, you know, this crazy yeah. lunatic New Year's Eve concert where I went out at the end, you know, and we all sang Whiskey River. Earl Campbell was standing next to me, you know, the mayor of Houston. and You know, a Texas New Year's Eve concert, you know, 1980, a whole new decade. Yeah. And honestly, I was alone in the dressing room downstairs, you know, sort of wired and still ready to go back up and thought, wow, a whole new decade. And I swear I heard a voice in my head say, yeah, and you try to live this one like you lived the last one and you'll die, you know. And I, I really had like an epiphany. And we got home and I called her management and I said, I think I need a break. And Bonnie called me a couple of days later and said, I think we all need a break. And, uh, and, and so, you know, thanks and yeah. best of luck. And I was down, that was January of 1980. In February, I was demoing down here. And in March, I was getting everybody notice and I lived here in June. So that was a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. So you moved here and then you got, you know, kind of small town, you know, USA, oh. you know, <laughs> which been... Must have been culture shock. Yeah, I mean, I was used to being able to go out for Thai food or, yeah. you know, go to Greenblatt's, you know what I mean, and get myself a deli sandwich, you know. And down here, I mean, they didn't have sliced luncheon meat. When I mean, I'm not putting it down. It's just it was a dry county. I was used to having yeah. a nice glass of red wine. And, you know, and all of a sudden I moved down here. And, I mean, at one point, Janet and I, honestly, I was going to make sauce one night because I'd lived in New York with an Italian guy, and I'd learned yeah. to make sauce. And I wanted some Italian sausages. Couldn't find them. Yeah. And so literally, in a, almost a punch-drunk evening, my wife and I went to the phone book and looked for ethnic names. And we found a Kowalski and, like, an Italian name. And I called her and asked where she got her sausage, you know. And I said, this is not a prank call. I really want to know where you go to buy sausage. And she told me about this Jewish deli in Birmingham called Brody's. And we got up the next day and drove down there and bought, like, locks and bagels and kielbasa. And, you know, Janet's Polish, you know, Polish. So we went down there and bought all this, like, ethnic food, you know, because we were... You know, and there was nothing Chinese really here, you know, nothing, no pizza. I mean, pizza was like matzo with ketchup on it, you know, around here. And, and you know, having lived in New York, I was spoiled yeah. to death. And, <laughs> and the real thing. So, uh, so, and now there's great food here in this town. There really yeah. is. I mean, it's, but, you know, when I first got here, it was like a meteor burning out in the Earth's atmosphere. But the thing that saved it, of course, was, you know, I signed with their publishing company. I was over there doing George Jackson demos, you know. I mean, it was some of the most soulful stuff that I've ever cut in my life. And uh, Malico bought Muscle Shoals Sound pretty quickly thereafter, so also I'm doing Johnny Taylor and Bobby Bland, and then, you know, Wexler brought Ed and James in, and you just realize, wow, and not only that, I'm done at 5.30, and I'm at a 7 o'clock Little League game. Mm -hmm. And I have a life. I'm, I'm, I'm a Little League assistant coach, and I'm a, you know, and Janet and I found a way to, like, you know, actually look each other in the eye and slow down enough to realize we can have a life here, you know. And you were able to be a husband and a father. I was able to be a husband and a father, and... And I mean, I, I have 11 grandchildren. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, a I, blessing. I, I'm a rich man. I mean, in the things that matter. When people ask me how I am, I say the good stuff's good. Yeah. You know, the bad stuff's negotiable, but the good stuff is good. So you got to be a, a husband and a father. So sometimes that doesn't really go along with the rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah, I can't always say to, 
that I came to every choice I made uh, altruistically. Yeah. Uh, there were times where I turned down tours that I thought, what am I doing? I, you know, I you know, turned down you know, Levon Helm and Russell Smith going to Alaska. I've been to every state but Alaska. I could have gone to Alaska with them. With Levon and Russell Smith. <laughs> yeah, but, but I did get to work with Levon later, and it was so wonderful. We spent hours together, you know, just overdubbing for a guy's record, and he was just great, you know. He just... Okay, I'm going to ask you to do it. Do your Levon impression. Well, he was playing mandolin, and I was playing bottleneck. Yeah. And we were sitting there, and he goes, oh, uh, I'll take the intro, Will. You take the first verse, and after that, it's every man for himself. <laughs> <laughs> I was still, after that, it's every man for himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's still, yeah. that's, it, again, it, it, it's, excellent studio <laughs> advice. That's right. Excellent, <laughs> excellent studio advice. But so I did get to do it later, but there were times where I'd, so I go, God, you know, but... But, you know, we have an expression, and, you know, Jan and I have an expression every now and then when, when, when we are really doing well and we really can't believe we're still fortunate enough to, we made it, you know, we've touched the mountain of our destruction several times, you know, you can't be married yeah. 42 years and not hit some walls. And real misunderstandings and a lot of baggage both of us have dragged into all of this, and especially after I lost my brother, and that was, those were the dark years. But coming back out of that, you know, every... Our expression now is every hard choice was worth it. Like every hard choice. We wouldn't have known it then. We didn't see what any value in any of it. We were just dogging it out sometimes, you know, yeah. for the kids or whatever. But we, we've laughed more in the last five years than we have in the previous 10, and that is not an exaggeration. We, we burst, and a lot of it's the subtle inside stuff that, we wouldn't have had if I had somebody new, if she had somebody new. It's, yeah. it's the stuff, it's the, there's foundational stuff in there that still runs so deep where I'll, I'll just maybe a little aside and she snaps losing it. And I know yeah. I just added a year to her life, you know, yeah. that had to affect her body chemistry in a positive way. So, you know, I was, uh, as I said, making hard choices to say I'd, I'd rather stay home. Muscle Shoals does afford you to live in a nicer way, in a more comfortable, you know, way, you know, I'd have to make four times the money to live in Nashville, probably, you know, to live in L.A., certainly. I, I, I don't even think, you know. And so this town afforded me the ability to not have to take every gig and to be able to slow down enough to take inventory. And I think that's what hit me, you know. I just realized that, you know, when, I, when my twins were three months old, my kid brother was murdered. It was a senseless act of him helping friends move a, one of their girlfriends out of an apartment. And a couple of locals came around the corner that were looking for cred in the mob, mm -hmm. really, in North Boston. And you're on our turf. And my brother was like, oh, we'll be out of here in 15 minutes. You know, let's everybody chill or whatever. And they went around the corner and came back around the corner with a gun and just shot him three times in the heart, you know, and, and it's just like CSI. I identified his body in the morgue. It's just like TV, but those are things you can't unsee. You walk into the morgue and you look at your post-autopsy kid brother and something snaps. And what it really says is nothing's going to hurt like that again. And you don't realize the terrible irony of making a, 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 a deep heart sort of compact like that because what you end up doing 
is really alienating the people that you love the most because you're guarded. That's it. You know, my mother died when I was five. My dad's mother died when he was nine. My granddad's mother died. It's generational. What makes me think I've got three-month-old twins that my wife, you know, I, you just stop investing emotionally. And you, I hate to look back at it and admit that I was that guy, you know, that just went into automatic pilot. This is what you do to survive. You do this. Yeah. But for three years, especially on the road with Bonnie, I just... All my eyes beheld, I kept not from them, if you'll, you know, if you've heard that quote before. And just, you know, it was on me. There was nobody to blame. I just checked out, you know. I just did what, what came before me. And when we moved down here and got out of L.A. and had the time to think, and my wife had been, you know, she's a believing woman, you know, and she, there's no reason in, in any rational way she should have ever stayed through those years. But... She did. She just did. She thought, this is the way. This is the guy. This is, you know, this is my guy. And, and so, you know, when you stopped enough to say, okay, uh, I get that God forgives, but do you? I mean, do we even have a hope? Are we going to be a statistic here, or is there going to be a chance? And we really just, you know, said, let's work on this, you know. And it doesn't mean we did it right, because there were still years of alienation in there, and all sorts of chronic fatigue over there and me going, what the, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, and turning down tours, you know. I mean, when Jim Horn called me for Winona Judd, you know, and I said, I just don't think I can right now. I think he thought I was nuts, you know. I mean, that was one of those, you know. And um, and then I'd go out in the backyard and I'd go, what did I just turn that down for? What a, you know, and I, and, uh, yeah. and it took me a while, you know, to, to, to not think I was just committing career suicide. And um, for the second time, supposedly, you know. And then in the midst of it all, you know, it's funny to have Jimmy call you up and say, they're inducting us into the Musicians Hall of Fame, and I want you to go in with us. I was like, Jimmy. What an honor. I mean, I was an honor. I mean, it still waters my eyes. I was like, well, wow. He said, well, they asked. He said, well, yeah, I know there's just four of us, but we couldn't have done it without our friends. You know, who yeah. are your friends, you know? Well, it's Spooner Randy McCormick and Clayton Ivey and Will McFarlane was here 20 years. And apparently Joe went, who's he? You know, <laughs> and, uh, which is fine because I love yeah. Joe now and I, I, I thoroughly enjoyable friend. But uh, he went, well, you know, he came here after Bonnie. Ra oh, he goes, that's good enough for me. You know okay. what I mean? And, yeah. and 20 years of doing doing records with the Muscle Shoals Room section. And, uh, and so we went in and that was actually my father came to that show. And that was maybe the third time my father's ever seen me play professionally. You know, he just never, you know, it was the kind of thing, I called him after Carnegie Hall. I was like, hey, Bob, I played Carnegie Hall. You know, he's like, great. You thinking about going back to school? You know, it yeah. just wasn't. <laughs> and it's not that my dad didn't love me. I knew, yeah. you know, I never doubted for a second, but yeah. he wasn't relational that way. And uh, so I said, Dad, I've got a gig coming up. I'd really like you to come see. And, oh, no, have a good time. No, 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 no. You can fly up from West Palm, you know, probably nonstop to Nashville for about 100 bucks, you know. That's probably what it was 10 years ago, you know. And he did. And I don't think he'd ever seen the honor in it before, you know. I don't think he'd seen people honored and we're out there with the crickets and Booker T and the MGs and, you know, Billy Sherrill and Al Cooper. And, you know, we're being introduced by Barbara Mandrell, who my dad particularly liked. And, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And and so it was just as we're at the Skirmerhorn, you know, and it's all like, you know, black tie and amazing. And 
and I've got a red ribbon around my, with a medallion, and I'm given a Lucite, you know, Lifetime Achievement Award, so to speak. And and I think what put him over was actually uh, Steve Cropper. I had a ch chance to tell Steve this story. Uh, we worked together on that Etta James record that was produced down here by uh, uh, Jerry Wexler. But uh, when Steve spoke when he got his, I was among the hoi polloi of recipi recipients, but Steve was... And he went to the mic, he said, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I wanted a guitar, and I asked my dad, and he said, son, we just don't have the money. He said, so I did anything. I mowed lawns, I shined shoes, I delivered papers, and I bought me a $17 guitar at Sears and Roebuck. And he goes, I brought it home, and my dad said, son, you learned to play that thing, I'll get you a better one. And I'd just like you to know my dad made good on his word, and I'd like to introduce Mr. Hollis Cropper. And his dad stands up at the Shermer horn, and the lights all hit him like this, and people start giving him a standing O, and over the top of it's... It's touching. Yeah. Cropper's going, and he carried my equipment, and he drove me and ducked every gig. Yeah. And he's just honoring his dad. And my dad, you know, took my guitar away from me if I made a B in school, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, and he's sitting there in the second row listening to all of this, you know? And I'm not putting my dad down. I'm just saying that's where, you know. Yeah. And the next morning, we're all, you know, getting ready to leave. He's going to catch a shuttle back to the airport and I stood up and and he had done the dad thing where I had all my kids at Union Station and the high you know and all the tickets to everything and I'd swipe my card at the desk and dad went and did the dad thing and swiped his card and took my card off which <laughs> saved me a couple of grand you know and I just sort of found out he'd done it so I went to him to hug him and I said by the way thanks pop you just did so much and he actually backed me away and he looked really you know he had this ice cold navy guy look you in the eye kind of thing and he went no I haven't done nearly enough. And after that, yeah, my son's a musician. And he caught, every now and then he tried to give me career advice. <laughs> I just heard the song, Wind Beneath My Wings. You need to write a song like that. You can write a song like that. That's a, you know, it's like he's giving me career advice now. But uh, he finally sort of got the idea that maybe for me, not having two postgraduate degrees was okay. I might have had an okay life, and, yeah. and I've achieved something in my life. I was already a grandfather by then when my dad, you know, got the idea that maybe I'm a musician, you know, for a living. And, and I'm not trying to put—he was a brilliant man, yeah. but, but there was a definite disconnect in our, view, in our life views, you know, so— That's huge that you were able to have that moment with him you know it doesn't matter how old you get yeah. i think everybody in the world still wants dad's okay they want respect you want your dad to go yeah that's my son i'm proud of him there you go you know yeah. so yeah there you yeah. go that's a special moment it was it was special i i was glad i was able to tell steve that he was sort yeah. of the catalyst his story yeah. really uh helped it, soften the the way you know yeah. so well, you've been, you know, as I kind of hinted at in our in the intro, that uh, you have been, you know, part of the the Swampers, and then you've been kind of one of the ambassadors for Muscle Shoals, and you've you know, kind of helped bring you know players down here, and you're you know kind of you know preaching the gospel of of Muscle Shoals and telling people about it, and people are coming coming through here, and you're you know you're you're telling them the history and. And you're you're not just part of it, but you're also one that's that's really relaying the history to others. And what a what a, a valuable thing that you're doing. It is. It's just an interesting season in all of us here. I mean, we we all, I, I think, corporately, and I don't mean that 
you know, corporately, I mean, yeah. like commun- communally, yes. all really have this feeling that, that a rising tide floats all boats. Yeah. You know, there's, there's not that kind of competition around here. It's like I'm rooting for my buddies to work, and, yeah. and, and I, want, I want it all to work. I want, you know, I yeah. want fame work, and I want this place work, and I want, you know, everybody in this town to enjoy the fact that, that we're in some kind of a power place musically, and yeah. not just because of its history, but it, it, it's almost like a quantum thing, you know, uh, here. And, uh, and the, the documentary that came out several years back, you know, that really, you know, uh, I think a lot of people never had Muscle Shoals on their radar because, you know, if you listen to Stax Volt, you go, wow, that's, that's Stax Volt. That's, it's, yeah. It sounds like Booker T cut that, and, you know, if you listen to Motown. But when you realize that Kodachrome... I'll take you there, old time rock and roll and torn between two lovers are the same band. Right. I mean, the versatility down here are Sailing by Rod Stewart or, or Respect Yourself, but you know, that's the same band. Yeah. And it's an amazing versatility in this town. Buddy, would you loan me a dime with Boss Skaggs with Dwayne on guitar? That's, you know, a different guitar player because that's right. Dwayne, but it's still cut right there, you know, from where we're sitting. And uh, Love Me Like a Rock was cut right there in Brown Sugar and and yeah. here we are in this amazing musical place, and nobody ever put it together that it was one place because it just doesn't sound reasonable. Right. And, and, and then somebody took the time yeah. to, really, to make an amazing documentary, and if anyone hasn't seen that, you need to see the Muscle, Muscle Shoals documentary because it's, it's amazingly well done. Yeah, they were driving through town, and yeah. I think a car breakdown or something said, well, let's just stay the night here, and they find the story out, and they just go, oh, my gosh, we got to chronicle this. And uh, great guys, and and I was actually living, when Muscle Shoals sold, uh, I didn't have anything to do, and I I moved uh, to North Carolina for a few years, you know, we were up there for a while, and all all our kids came up, and that's where our grandkids started being born, and, and, uh, but I was not as happy up there, I just, and I came back after the movie was already shot, actually Jimmy had said, please come down here, I want to get them to interview you, and I came down here and met the guys, and they basically looked at me and said, man, we'd love to interview, but we have 480 hours of film we're just about to start right. editing. We don't even have it in us anymore to like film one more thing. Yeah. And uh, I, don't, I, I don't mind, it was about those guys. It was about that era, and I worked for all of them and with all of them, you know, uh, the, the, the rhythm section guys here. And so, you know, it's uh, people all of a sudden started seeing it going, well, instead of going to Nashville, maybe let's go down to Muscle Shoals and see what happens. And so they'd call Fame, and I'm sort of the youngest of the old guys down here. So a lot of times Fame would call me first because they know I'll chart mm-hmm. and just show up with a chart that David Hood or Spooner or Clayton, you know, like to read Quiet. that we're all comfortable with. And we just go in, and we're so comfortable with each other that, that we just started working like crazy. We had a couple of years there where, where we were just in the studio every day. Oh, it was a wonderful, wonderful season. I'm still, I mean, I was at Fame yesterday. I'll be at the Nut House tomorrow. Yeah. I'm down here talking to you today. So <laughs> so I, I love the season we're in, you know, where you've got guys like John Paul White who, you know, won four Grammys and he has a record label here in town. And he's he's going cross-generational and producing records for Donnie Fritz, you know, who wrote songs that Keith Richards and, and Ray Charles cut, you know. And, and Donnie comes and sits in with, you know, my band on Tuesday nights, and we do Donnie, Donnie Fritz songs, you know, yeah. here in town, and he's a local treasure, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So he's got an album out, and just did another album where he's honoring Arthur Alexander, because he used to write with the guy. 
amazing, you know. This, amazing. And the continuum keeps going as the next generation is honoring this generation, and then we're passing it on to the. You know, it's a it's a salad, you know. It's a and uh, there's there's just a lot of camaraderie going on in this town right now, and it's a, so that's a pleasure, you know. We're not just professional friends. I mean, we eat dinner at each other's houses, you know. It's uh, I've landed in a pretty nice place. It is a pretty nice place. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about gear. Awesome. <laughs> so you mentioned before that you had bought this. Uh, well, let's talk about the guitar you have on you right now. So this is a, a Danocaster made by Dan Strain. It's a. It's one of my most recent purchases, but I put my hands on it, mm -hmm. and it just felt like a vintage instrument next to me. It felt. I'm so used to. You know, my main guitar, if you see old footage of Bonnie in the 70s with me playing that white guitar like on Midnight Special or something, yeah. that's a 54. That's serial number 0533. And, you, and you've got... It's right behind me. Okay. Pull, I may need yeah. to get out, but as I say, I don't take that out much. Right. I play it with big shoes. For It's the best slide guitar I've ever owned. Okay. It's great, but this has become sort of my... My... Uh, it's a very smooth instrument. It's got yeah. the strap... It's yeah. very articulate, yeah. and um, but uh, this little 54 behind me. This is my studio Strat now. Yeah. I actually play live a lot too, but um, this 54 is my oldest possession on earth. This is um, again. This is the instrument that you played like on the old gray whistle test. I played this on the old gray whistle test. It had a different pick guard at the time that had minted green. What this actually was is a 54-0533 serial okay. number. And the guy who had owned it, all 54s were, um, were um, what do I want to say, tobacco sunburst. Yeah. You know. So uh, this guy saw Hendrix, as the story goes, he saw Hendrix on uh, at Woodstock and wanted it white and sent it back to Fender for a factory refin, refin white. And they put the pick guard of the time on it that meant green, but right. it cracked down the middle. Mm -hmm. So I just took it off and put this on it, you know, which is... That's a replacement. That, again, I went to Wallachie. Yeah. At the very beginning, they were really rusted little inserts in there. Yeah. And I was scratching my hand. It was tearing the skin on my hand. Well, and also, there weren't replacement parts at that point. No. You know, it wasn't like you could cut, yeah. <laughs> you know, so this, but this guitar is going Just so...
Just a really, and it's got it too. Great sound, and if I had a slide here, I'd show you. It's just, it's got that Lowell George thing, and it really does. It's a great slide guitar, and this was my main, main instrument for 30 years. Yeah. This, I just played this. I did whatever, 300 shows with Bonnie with it, and then all the stuff I did down here. I think this was a guitar I was actually tuning when I first met Bobby Bland. And he'd had Wayne Bennett, you know, with him for 35 yeah. years, and Wayne had just passed, and we did the next record after Wayne passed. So he comes in, and they're introducing him, and this is Roger, and this is David. And, and there's your guitar player, Wilma Farland, before he says hi, he goes, that's a rock guitar. And I go, <laughs> well, Buddy Guy plays one. He goes, that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that's a rock guitar. And, and it's still one of my favorite stories, because we, we did this uh, song that went, and I went, whatever we kick we start off with the five mm -hmm. and and he went take your time so <laughs> you know what i mean so we redid another cut of it and it went da 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 all right all right da, da, mm. you know i mean i just cut it in twelfths you know and uh and so that was one of those things and even on the song they kept him saying, take yeah. your time, son. They put it later in the yeah, song. because it sounds, it's a good, it's a good line. <laughs> yeah, it's a good, but I, I'll never forget the first thing I ever said, that's a rocket, Tom. But, <laughs> but this was, um, this is just, I had 0247 at one point. It was okay. a dog. It just didn't sustain. Yeah. I traded it to a collector. Actually, Rick Vito. I traded it to Rick Vito for an amp. And I still maybe regret that a little. Love you, Rick, but, you know, and, uh, and then, you can hold that one. This, I bought for 300 bucks. I bought that one for 400 bucks, by the way. And so we didn't realize we were collecting, you know. In, yeah. the, in the late 80s, I had a Japanese guy offer me $40,000 for that, and I didn't sell it to him for some reason because I thought maybe it'll be worth more than that. I, I don't have much to leave my kids, so th this, is my, this is my hard copy here, you know? I mean, and, and now, you know, they're probably worth half that, you know, because the bubble popped. But, um, but this was my prob probably my primary session. Very warm, 55 yeah. telly, you know, but you can have... You know, if it also has a whatever, you know, it's just yeah. very, very articulate. But it's got it, and it's got that too. <laughs> These strings are, you know. Fake still. Little, little Roy Buchanan there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, but uh, it's an all in day. This is a workhorse. This is an uh, one piece body, you know. Yeah. And that neck, that old neck. I love, it's, it, I love how old maple necks, they get kind of this fossilized yeah, kind I know. of look. Isn't that feel crazy? Yeah. I know. I love this old guitar. 300 bucks. Yeah. I actually like that sound. Yeah. 
It just means business. It just, <laughs> just means you're ready to go. It means, but, it means the amp's ready. But you can tell, this, this guitar isn't quite as full-bodied as the 54. I don't know, it's just the warmth of those old pickups. Plus, I have heavier strings on that one because I play slide on it most of the time. Yeah. So this is just, you know... It uh, looks like late 60s uh, Princeton yeah, Reverb. It's the year I got out of high school. It's a 69, 69 Princeton. I've, uh, it was rotting in a guy's tool shed. A friend of mine, named Howlin' Wynn, Mike Davis up there, he's a harp player. Mm -hmm. And uh, he'd played a lot of harp through it, and then it just came undone or whatever. And it was just out in his tool shed. And I was eating dinner with him one night. We'd getting to know each other, and he's showing me around his acreage he's got this workshop out there and you know you can see tolex for miles you know what i yes, mean if you've yes. got any geek in you at all and and so you know at one point you know he's saying this is where i do this this is where i do my thing whatever and then and i say is that a little lamp <laughs> like, <laughs> he goes yeah i used to play harp through it you get it working it's yours yeah so i take this princeton home and i handed it to Tim Risto at Superfine, he makes car amps, you know, he's part of the car yeah. thing. He's really a talented, talented. He's the kind of guru who goes, oh no, at this year they stopped using the right taper in there because they saved money on potentiometers and the treble knob should have been different than this. You know, he's that guy. Yeah. He's, he, he's the guru. Oh man, these things are a little too hot. Are you burning out tubes in this amp, you know, a little early? You know, I like this for that and da-da-da-da-da. And let's recap it with this because it's, yeah. you know, holy grail or whatever. So he's one of them. And I loved him, and I gave it to him. He said when he first shined a light in the back of it, he jolted because there was a snake. He didn't know if there was a snake in it, or but it just molted over the years. There was a snake skin in the back and mouse droppings, and he cleaned all the wood out yeah. and then pulled it out, pulled everything off the board, baked it, made sure it wasn't, you know, and then point to point, re-soldered everything right, and if it needed a cap or a... Something he used a holy grail new old yeah. stock part, you know. Yeah, he rebuilt it, and he just basically it's it's basically a boutique amp, and I put yeah. a WGS speaker in it yeah. to give it some headroom, and you can tell it's just a uh, you know. I mean, I have this Prince on two and a half. That's what I mean. I mean, it just sounds it sounds like a guitar through an amp, yeah. which I always did. At one point in the 80s, they were making us all go direct with speaker simulators and little mini fridges, you know, that had little MIDI hookups and one EMG pickups and no, everybody's isolated. And at one point, I just thought, I suck. I've lost my touch. Everything's plicking. Everything's clicking. And one day... I just showed up for a record at Muscle Shoals Sound with my 410 Tweed Bassman and just put a volume pedal in line, you know what I mean? And a tuner. And uh, the engineer who's a guitar player, Steve Melton's a friend, and he came out and he goes, and there's two DIs waiting on my table, you know, and, and I've bypassed him and he goes, uh, what are we doing today? Yeah. And I said, just put a 57 on it, let's see what happens. And sure enough, he just put a 57 on it. Mick, yeah, I was over at 9 o'clock somewhere. I wasn't 9 and 3 in perfect stereo, you know. He just had me over here somewhere. And all day long, people were going, you sound great today. Yeah. It was like I, nobody had said that in years. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But it was just air yeah. was moving. Right. 
And, and I thought, that's it. I'm, I'm playing through amps for my life, you know? And so uh, that's what I like. I like to hear. Just sounds like air is moving. You know, it just sounds like Muscle Shoals, right? happen for us to be able to come down here thank you for you know for making the connection where we could interview jimmy johnson i'm so glad you were able to yes. interview. he's and such an you, influence and thank you that we could uh take the time to interview you that we could be here at the at the studio where so many amazing things happen thank you so much it's my good pleasure it's great being with you This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone, TrueTone.com.